Thanks for downloading this podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to a special programme on the Radio Show Limited network of audio and video channels. Uh, We're going back to a tried and tested format today, and that is uh, one of Tyler's long ones, named after our pit lane reporter, Graham Tyler, who came up with this idea of doing uh, what we would now call long-form interviews. And I I am genuinely delighted to say that our subject for this one today is someone who uh, has been a star on the racetrack, a star on the small screen uh, and on radio as well and has passed on some of uh, his uh, not not small amount of experience to me actually as a, a broadcast colleague. Uh, in the uh, the ELMS radio days, and that means it can only be one person, and that is one Bill Adam, uh, who is joining us today. Hello, Bill. Hello, John. This is uh, it's very flattering and uh, and quite an honour to be on with you this morning. Well, listen, it, it's this is well overdue, and uh, it takes me back to some of our drives into various circuits. Uh, down through the time when we did work together and I'm sure we'll get some of those anecdotes <laughs> from you uh, as well before we turned on the recorder um, Bill did ask me how honest I want him to be and I said well so long as the statute of limitations on any crimes you're going to admit to is gone <laughs> so I think that's about the only thing I want to go right back Bill if you don't mind to to the very beginning because most of our listeners will know uh, you as um, a Canadian, uh, living in the US for many years now, but it all started in North Lanarkshire, in Airdrie, yes. in Scotland. It did indeed. I, uh, my family were all Scottish uh, and a couple of generations back. And um, I, it's one of the, the sad parts of my life that I don't know the actual reason why my parents decided to emigrate from Scotland to Canada. I assume they just they thought, well, better standard of living, more opportunities, whatever it was. But I never did find out the real reason. But uh, yes, I'm very much Scottish by birth and then raised in Canada. So I get known by whoever doesn't want me anymore. Nah, you weren't <laughs> Scottish, you weren't Canadian, you got to be out of here. <laughs> um, do you have any memories of Airdrie in Scotland? When, when did they come over? This was... Um, this was just after World War Two in the, the mid to late 1940s. When did you come over uh, and make the trip over the puddle? Yeah, I believe it was uh, like 1950s. So I was just a wee guy. I don't have any clear recollections of Airdrie at all, that the little town I was born in. Um, nothing at all. It's just my, my first recollections were of Canada. And uh, that's where... The love of cars, the love of motorsport, was really developed. And how did that happen, Bill? Was was it a family thing? Was it your mum and dad who were interested in automobiles and racing? No, I don't know. Maybe it was the milkman, John, because uh, <laughs> neither mum or dad had 
any interest in cars at all. And even though dad worked for the Studebaker Car Corporation, which was in Hamilton, Ontario, um, he, uh, he had no interest. When he left work, he didn't look at a magazine and go, my gosh, that's a good looking car or anything. And somehow I developed this passion for cars to the point that I do remember being a little tyke and with scissors, I would carefully cut out the outline of cars in, uh, in ads and magazines and then paste those pictures into a scrapbook. I just had this insatiable desire for, uh, for anything to do with cars. That's extraordinary that you remember that. But, but those memories, those are early memories. They do stick with you. And, and I love the idea of, of cutting things out and being able... To, to, to keep them. Now, was it any type of cars, Bill, or were you already leaning towards the sporty and the racing cars, even at those, at those formative years? Yeah, no, to be honest, initially it was just, it was anything. And uh, as I went through school, I started with a, uh, a, an interest in hot rods. I used to buy a magazine, appropriately titled Hot Rod Magazine. And I kept them perfect. I didn't want dog-eared corners and, and kept them just beautiful. I can and imagine one day that. I, oh, yeah. So one day a friend of mine at school said, hey, can I borrow some of these to read them? Well, of course you can. And I got them back, uh, gee, sometime later, maybe a month later. And I had given them perhaps six of them. Well, I got back three, and they were dog-eared and ripped and torn. And along with that was like one rodent track and one car and driver, stuff like this. And I was mad at the time, and I thought, eh, let me take a look through these things, which was one of the better things of my life, because I immediately changed from hot rods into sports cars. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So, so that, you remember that specifically as the time that the young William Adam had his head turned from, from hot rods and, and V8s yes into sports cars and potentially therefore into racing yes for so how sure old were you, how old would you have been about uh, about that time there bill oh let me think maybe 13 or 14 right all oh, right right in your formative uh f- formative early teens yes that so that was a that was a big that was a big uh, a big change and and what then is your first remembrance or at least what's your first recollection of motorsport? Well, the, my first race ever was uh, June, I believe it was June 14th of 1961, and a, a cousin of mine was a, uh, a flag marshal uh, uh, who said, hey, I'm going up to this track called Mosport. Uh, would you like to come along? I won't be with you all day, but this is back in a time when nobody worried about kids wandering around all over the place by themselves. So I went to Mosport with him, and uh, I watched Sterling Moss drive this pale green Lotus 19 to victory. Uh, I also got his autograph that day. He beat Joe Bonnier, who was driving a Porsche RS61. Olivier Jean de Bien came third in an RS60. And I was hooked, John. I mean, it was like, oh, my God, this is too good to be true. And, in fact, that day also came to format a good portion of my life because as I'm wandering through the pits with my little Kodak brownie camera, this cheap little piece of junk, 
I saw this red swoopy fendered car, wire wheels on it, and there was a mechanic working on the right front suspension. And I wandered over and I said, um, excuse me, is, is this a Ferrari? And he looked back at me and he said, yeah, of course it is. And he kept working. So I take a picture and a month later, I'd saved up enough allowance to where I could get the film developed. <laughs> and I started matching up the photographs with my program. And sure enough, here is this car, and it said, Triumph Special. Mm. And I was shocked, and I said, I I'm thinking to myself, why did this guy lie to me? I'm asking just a general question. And it led to me wanting to, like you, give out as much information mm. about the cars and the sport that we love. So that... That is all about the same time, isn't it? So that the road and track, yeah. and and that so that, that would have been you'd have been fourteen or fifteen years old uh, then. Um, God, wow, never knowing how much most ports uh, would would play a part in your life. So when so you're still at school. Um, yes. Your parents are clearly, you know, not not. Uh, not worried about you getting interested in this new sport, but then things take a turn because how did you get into racing from that? Because we've all done that. We've all pressed our nose against the fence uh, and, and gone to support and, and started finding things out. But what was it then that turned Bill Adam from a spectator into a potential and then an actual competitor? Well, you know, I think I always wanted to do it from the very first time I saw a car go around Mosport. I was dying to try it. And I thought, I don't know if I could. I, I don't even know if, if I could get around a corner without spinning the car out. I thought I could. And then one day we were watching club races. My friends in school and I, we used to hound one of our fathers to drive us up to Mosport for a day just to watch club events, do whatever we could because we all found it so interesting. And one day I'm watching somebody up there race this old Corvette and at turn three at Mosport, he spun on three consecutive laps. Didn't hit anything, but I'm sure he changed the color of his underwear. And I thought, well, geez, if, if he can do it, I think I can do it better than that. And that was what planted a seed. But of course, I had no money and uh, my parents had no money at all. My, my dad, like I said, worked for Studebaker. My mom worked in the cafeteria at the local high school, and uh, we, we were as poor as church mice. So it was years later when I had completed school, I'm in my first job, and a, a very wonderful man who I had met in the province of Quebec, uh, he mentioned one day, gee, you got to come and have a look at this car with me. Uh, it was his brother-in-law's race car. And it was an old Corvette, something called a Grand Sport, which I knew nothing about them. It turned out it was one of six Grand Sports ever built. And I paid the outrageous sum of $2,350 for it, thinking, oh, my God, I'm, I'm investing all this money. I what, don't know what year if was, I can... What year was this, Bill, about? 1971. Wow. And uh, I bought this Grand Sport. And went through driver school at Mosport. And had a great deal of fun. Came second in my first race and then won the next two. And uh, then 
I was out of money. I, I couldn't afford, I ran the same set of tires for all three races, John. It was like, I need to get a rental car to do this and be better. So, so you didn't start racing then till you were in your 20s. That, I mean, even yes. by those days, that was, that was quite late. Mm. It's, it's not Formula Fetus. It wasn't Formula Fetus like it is nowadays with kids on carts starting at four, five, six, seven years old. But yeah. clearly you'd been driving. Uh, before then, were you driving a stick? Did you have to get used to a stick when you started racing? How did that work? Um, no, I, I actually, my very first car, I bought an old, a 1961 Austin Healey 3000. Oh, lovely. And, oh, it was my pride and joy. Even though the exhaust pipes would just break every couple of months, the Canadian weather and roads beat the devil out of those things. But I loved that little car. So, yeah, I kept trying to polish my skills in that car and get it sliding around some of the back roads up north of where I lived and just fell in love with it. I would loved to have started racing when I was 16. Oh, my God, that would have been a dream come true. But mm. no money to do it. And I just had to be patient, hoping that someday I might be able to start. So, so what were you doing for work at that time, Bill? Um, initially, as a chemist, I uh, went through school and I had a curiosity about chemistry that turned out to be a massive mistake because when you learn all the different processes of, of chemistry you're going to use one of those processes every day for the rest of your life so the boredom was endless and I actually ended up leaving that and working as an insurance adjuster insurance investigator for all state insurance wow wow when did motorsport begin to take over then? So you've done your first few club races with the Grand Sport. You've run out of cash pretty much immediately. As yes. pretty, that's not not an unusual <laughs> unusual yeah, story. Common, so you've put that to one side. What what is the young Bill Adam doing to try and get back out on the track? And and what plans, if any plans, were happening, or did something change? Well, at, at the end of the season, I was approached by uh, another chap who lived up in Ottawa, the nation's capital, who said, do you have any interest in selling this car? And I thought, yes, I have no more money. And he offered me, I think it was 2900 And I thought, I'm the smartest guy in the world. I, I bought this for 2350 I've got three <laughs> races under my belt, and I'm selling for 2900 It was great. Well, by the way, the last time I sold my old car for sale it went for 2.9 million so in the stock market john don't listen to me <laughs> all right so you had some money back but you didn't have anything to race so what happens next well bought like in the usual case bought something a little bit newer which turned out to be a 1967 corvette called a b production car a small block chevrolet did quite well with that car, um, winning an Ontario championship, and then the, had a chance to sell it, which I did for a very small profit. And the following year, bought a big block Corvette, and with that, I won the Canadian championship. And in turn, that led to a few offers from uh, a chap named Mo Carter, a Hamilton Chevrolet dealer who used to race Camaros very successfully. Great, great race driver. And through Mo, uh, raced his Camaro with him. I had a chance to drive NASCAR in a couple of races on Mosport, which was just a ball. Wow. And um, on and on. So we're still in the mid to late 70s here, Bill. Um, yeah. you, you managed to make it down 
to the World Championships for makes uh, with the 7-litre Chevrolet Corvette uh, for John Greenwood racing in 1975. Yeah. Now, that was down at Watkins Glen. What do you remember of that? Gosh, yeah, I remember it well. Um, the car was, it, it was wonderful. You, normally, I would think of Corvettes, they're big, lumbering old cars, but John Greenwood was very, very good at improvising and uh, just just making really wonderful race cars. And a couple of a couple of memories in that race. I can remember in the race we were leading our class, and at one point Ronnie Peterson was driving one of the CSL coupes, gorgeous BMWs. <laughs> he came by me. He drafted me down the straight, and at the end of the straight at the Glen. The car just pitched sideways, and I thought, oh, my God, something's happened. He's going to crash into the Armco barrier. Well, he didn't. He carried on, and I stayed as close as I could. In the following lap, he did it again. And that was just his style. And I thought, oh, you're a different human being. Yeah, yeah, aliens. That, that, he was brilliant. Uh, wired differently. Uh, in those early years, in the mid to, to late 70s, Corvettes featured very heavily with with... The, the Greenwood team with with Mason Racing um, yep. in the in the Trans Am Championship in '76 um, and Dead Bear Racing for a couple of year <laughs> for a couple of bits and pieces in '77 and and '78. Tell me about I'm dying to hear about Dead Bear <laughs> Racing because you you were doing a, a, a couple of different races with them. Yeah, well. I, one of my dear friends, my, my oldest, longest-lasting friend in the world, is John Phillips of uh, Car and Driver fame. He's been a writer with them forever. And John is just, he's the funniest human being I have met in my entire life. And one day we were talking about, okay, this, this Greenwood Corvette that I ended up buying because the owner didn't want it and didn't have any idea what the value was. Bought this car and John said, Bill, this is, this is getting like semi-pro. We're, we're, we're getting into the big leagues now. We need to have a team name. And I'm thinking, well, what about uh, William Adam competition? What about, and, and he's, no, no, no. How about um, Dead Bear Racing? And I looked at him and I thought, yeah, why not? And we had shirts done up showing the tail end of a Corvette disappearing into the distance. And it had just run over a bear it's covering his eyes with his front paws, and the tracks are across the bear's back. Nice. And we did that, and then John would do these wonderful press releases that we put it at the track within a degree of slander. At which, and, and at one point, one of the press releases featured Bob Tullius in the Jaguar. Bob was not amused. He didn't even crack a smile as he read this press release, but the rest of the people in the press room were rolling on the floor in laughter at John's brilliant writing. Good fun. Now, that's interesting because Bob Tullius is part of the next part of the Bill Adam story. And if you are just joining us, it's Bill Adam on a Tyler's Long One with me, John Hindorf. We've moved up to the late 70s. It's all been Corvettes in Bill's driving so far. Yes. 1980. What happens then um, to get you at the end of 1979 into what is a factory blessed probably even more than that group 44 yep. car with the triumph tr8 uh, yes. and, and bob tullius is your co-driver 
Yeah, it, it that was one of those things, John, that you, you think it will never happen because it, it's too good to be true and it's everybody's wish to get the ride. Um, I think it was 79 at the Trans Am race at Mosport. Uh, I had qualified uh, in the Dead Bear Corvette, qualified on the pole, and Tullius at that point had been virtually undefeated all year long. Yeah. Pole position win, pole position win. And here I was on the pole, and they came down and took a look at the car and said, you know, haven't seen you around before. I said, I can't afford to go around at all. And he said, well, you've, you've done a, a nice job and blah, blah. Well, the race started, and Bob and I had this knockdown, dragout battle. I led him for 38 laps, and uh, then I had an exhaust header break, which just took off enough horsepower that he got by me up the back straight with a lap and a half to go. But still, it was one of the most enjoyable races of both of our lives. And it led to Bob coming down afterwards and congratulating me again and saying, look, if I ever run a two-car team, I'm going to call you. And I, I thought at the time, John, you know, he's being very nice. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, wouldn't that be a wonderful dream come true? Well, Boxing Day that year, I'm outside shoveling snow and uh, heard the phone ran inside grabbed it and it was bob tullius although at the time i thought it was a friend just pulling a joke with me and he said hi bill this this is bob tullius um what are you doing next year and he sounded so like my friend and i thought i'm actually waiting for ferrari to call me and uh i'm probably going to take a ride with them in the f1 car and i'm being this sarcastic idiot and then i had the realization oh my God, this might be Bob, and you have just blown your chances. Oh my goodness. I said that to him, and thankfully he was very understanding. He said, Bill, I know that this is the phone call that we all hope we get someday, and well, you just got your call. How would you like to drive next year with me? And it was, I was in shock, John. I, I just couldn't believe it. That was a, that was a really interesting car, um, the, the, the TR8, wasn't it? Just wonderful. It was like a, uh, like a really beautifully developed go-kart. It had no vices. And the biggest challenge was that it only had something around 370 horsepower. So not a lot of power, but its ability to use the power and to mm. use everything in the car. The braking was superb. The handling was perfect. Uh, and uh, as I said, Bob's team, um, Group 44... I, I, absolutely legendary uh, in yes. in the annals of of our sport and uh, it, it in some ways it was no surprise that that car they developed that car and how good it was but in that first series uh, in IMSA as it was in those days GTO yeah. category so yes. tw- 12 hours of Sebring class win Road Atlanta class win Moor Sport home ground class win Road America and Tell me what what was happening in Daytona. That wasn't was that a twenty four hour race at Daytona because you drove alone in that one. I can't find when I've looked back. I can't find the, the fact that you had a co driver. Well, I, I'll back up a little bit earlier in the season that um, we won Sebring, which is our first race together, and that was magical. Oh my god! But it I, was. I, I couldn't believe it because that was always one of my bucket list kind of races. I wanted to attend it. Always wondered what would it be like to win the biggest race in the country, and of course we got lucky that well we didn't get lucky. It was good planning, good work, good everything. Um, Bob at 
Laguna Seca, which I think was the following, maybe, maybe a couple of weeks after Sebring, he came over to me one day and he said, you know, I'm really happy with what we did at Sebring. You're living up to my uh, expectations, which are, are quite difficult, Bill, so you, you're doing a good job. And um, he said, I want to tell you one thing, that we're, we're going to be having a second car this year. This is going to be your car to race. But he said, there's something you have to know right away. Don't pass the boss. That's okay. I'm fine with that. You're giving me the chance of this marvelous ride, so I'll do whatever you ask. Well, as the season went along, um, we had one race uh, in Daytona when late in the race, I caught him. He was having all kinds of problems, and it was very difficult to lift my foot off the gas and not pass him. We came one, two. And then late in the year, we're talking how this was their final race of the year, and Bob said, you know what, as a bonus, um, gloves are off today. If, and he said, quote, if you think you can beat me, go ahead and try it. So the race started, and I beat him. Oh. And uh, it, was, it was wonderful. The crew were happy. You know, it, Bob made that uh, racing for Group 44 somewhat difficult because... Unlike some people, like like Dave Mirage, for example, with Champion, who had this overpowering joy in being part of the team and winning and sharing experiences, for Bob, it was purely a business. And when we would win yeah. a race, he would be satisfied that he had achieved the goal he set out. But there was little to no joy in Bob Tullius for being part of, of motorsport. It was, was just a business. That is oh, so interesting. It, it made it very difficult at times, John, because uh, at one point, Bob came over to me one day, had me sit in the, the rental car so nobody could huh. overhear us, and said, you know, I'm really happy with what you're doing with the team, Bill, but I want you to stop having dinner with the crew. And I thought he was joking. Mm. And he said... And he took his hands and he put one hand up high, like maybe brow height, and said, you are a driver. And with his other hand, he put it chest height. And he said, they are the crew. Wow. And I said, Bob, I can't do that. These are my friends. They're yeah. working on my race car. And he said, this is not a suggestion. This wow. is an order. Isn't that interesting? Was, do you think that was part of the success story though because he was able to compartmentalise that and not make decisions then in any way out of emotion he was making decisions absolutely cold in the cold light of day yeah he could John it, it, that's so true and I always viewed Group 44 as like an early iteration of uh, Penske racing mm -hmm. of whatever because he was so far ahead of his time and making sure that his sponsors got a ton of publicity yeah. so he could go to them at the end of the year and go, all right, the previous year, your dollar bought X number of people uh, who you want to reach for your, for your uh, advertising, mm -hmm. but I have reached X plus 10 or whatever it would be. So mm -hmm. he was great documenting the, the success of the team and taking care of sponsors. I want to skip forward, staying with Group 44, because in 1982, there's, a, there's another big milestone for them and, indeed, for Bill Adam, who's with us on this Tyler's Long One. Because part of the way through the season, I think you were racing an XJS in the early part yeah. of the season, but part You're way right. through the year, out comes one of, for my 
and I, there's a lot of Jaguar race cars that I like. They were part of my uh, my formative years. But I think the XJR5 that that oh. came out mid '82. Um, yes. It was just such a purposeful but pure prototype-looking race car. That I'm, I'm looking at a picture um, in uh, of you in the car, with the white and green car, white and light and dark green car. We thought that fabulously neat rear wing on it, slightly yeah. cab forward as it was in those days. I'm not. I don't even want to think where you've. Your feet and your ankles were with respect <laughs> to the front axle line, Bill. But uh-huh. it is, it is, it's got a purity of design about it that actually still looks modern today. Tell us about your memories of that and, and how that came out. I mean, you debuted at Road Atlanta, at uh, Road America, excuse me, which is yes. a very, very <laughs> tough place to go with a new car, and it finished on the podium. Yeah, I believe we got third in that race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, oh gosh, you know, I remember it so well. My first sight of that car literally took my breath away. It was like, oh my God, is that thing a handsome car? Mm. And the sound of it just added to it. Everything was perfect. It was so interesting that at Road America, when we rolled the car out at the back of the, uh, the trailer, the press were everywhere. And Bob, which was unusual for him, he stayed dressed up in a, uh, a jacket and tie, <laughs> and he said, Bill, you take the car out first. And that was an enormous honor as far as I was concerned. And I can remember leaving the pit lane and driving out of the track down towards turn one at, at, at the track. You know well, John. <clears throat> and the marshals at the side of the track on my left-hand side all dropped their flags and put their hands in the air, and they were clapping. <clears throat> And it was, I mean, it gave me goosebumps in the car just going around and seeing this instant appreciation by all of the marshals on the uh, the introduction to that car. It was beautiful. Uh, and a, a car that um, was quick, it handled well. Um, if, we, if we jump into the 83 season... You, I think you led every single race, as far as I yeah, can see did. from the from the, the lap charts, um, and you yeah. won at four times during the year. Road Atlanta, Lime Rock, uh, Lime, that I just can't even believe those cars went Lime Rock, the old Lime Rock without the chicanes in, um, and uh, Mossport again, and Portland, but it didn't, it didn't always get to the end, and that was that was that was what cost you the championship that year. Yeah, one of the big frustrations was, um, <clears throat> pardon me, um, well, two things, actually. Bob, uncharacteristic, uncharacteristically, made a number of mistakes that year, that we were leading the 24 Hours of Daytona, and Bob spun at one point and hit something, and we never did find out what it was, but he basically removed most of the right front corner the suspension was totally gone from the car when he drove this three-wheeler back in the pits. And then Sebring, leading again, head gasket failure. And the head gasket turned out to be the real problem until they, they finally O-ringed the, uh, the, the cylinder heads to, to get rid of that problem. Then it was dead reliable. It was quite remarkable. That year, too, also, uh, you know, going back to... Oh, gosh, when would that have been? Maybe 71 or 72. I had gone up to Mosport again with my pals. And the Canadian Grand Prix that year, not a Formula One race, this is a sports car race. There were like, uh, 
I think Ennis Ireland was in a Lotus 19, Dan Gurney in 19, uh, Jim Hall in a Chaparral, all these wonderful cars and drivers. And qualifying fourth on the grid was a young Canadian named John Cannon. And John was driving this big black Chevrolet front engine race car called a Delu Special. Oh God, it was, a, it was like a Batman car, it was just such a sexy beast. In the rain, the green flag falls on a standing start, and at the end of lap one, John Cannon is leading this international field. And it, it was my first taste of national pride. Mm. I was standing there. I was just proud to be a, a quote, Canadian. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Here, here this guy's leading the race. And so in 83, when we took the Jag to Mosport, it had always been my dream to win, quote, the big race at home. That was always my, my dream. And we won the six-hour race at Mosport. And uh, taking the checker flag at the end of that race and driving around the track, seeing the Canadian fans waving and cheering, ah, oh, John, it, it brought tears to my eyes. Yeah, I bet it did. I bet it did. And, and, what, and effectively, at that point, your career has come full circle because you've gone from a spectator going through the race school there to being a, a driver. Now, you, were you being paid to drive when you were driving for, for Group 44, Bill? No. <laughs> that, that's one of the, the really funny things, and, and you bring up a good point, that when, uh, when Bob asked me to drive for him, I expected him to, to say something, but not one nickel. <laughs> he, he paid my expenses to get to the racetrack, and that was it. And to be perfectly honest, I was fine with it. I would love to have been making a little bit of money, but oh my God, what an opportunity. So you, you were still working in a, in a day job at that point. What were you doing then? I was still in insurance wow. and I would break, break down my holidays into, into a, uh, a Thursday and Friday off before a race weekend so that it gave me time to mm. fly someplace, race, and then I'd be red-eyeing home and go to work. Wow. Wow! So you you were a weekend warrior. Never mind, never mind the crew. That's extraordinary yeah. to be racing at that level of you know the, at the in the IMSA Championship in '83 in a full blown prototype lapping Lime Rock Park at warp speed, which I still can't. Your name's still on the on the wall as a lap record holder. Every time I go to Lime Rock, I I, I, I touch it for luck. So we go in uh -huh. there. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, John. So we're talking. So so '82. Um, 83, rather, we're talking about there, the GTP, the, the IMSA Camel GTP Championship. But th there was also um, a, a couple of outings there in a, in a Porsche 935, a K3 for Hens Swap Shop. Tell us about that, because that's another absolutely seminal car of the period. Oh, it was a wild car. That, that was um, Preston Hens, uh, the, the Moby Dick Porsche, as they, they call it. And... Um, at Daytona, at the, the finale, at the end of the 83 season, Bob had uh, one of his accidents in, uh, in qualifying and coming off the turn four banking, which when you think about that, John, it's, you're 200 miles an hour plus. Yeah, yeah. He put the car up against the wall and it was like holding the Jag to a grinder as he's slowing down from 200 miles an hour down to a dead stop. It just kept grinding further and further and he finished that there was only like an inch of car left between his right hip and what would have been the wall going by as it ground the car into nothingness. 
So we were out of the race, and um, Preston walked over to me at one point, and, uh, Bale, you all want to drive my car? And I, oh, I don't know if I can. So I went to Bob, said, look, Preston asked me to co-drive his, uh, his Porsche. Can I do it? And Bob said, yes, just don't hurt yourself. That's all he said. So I walked over, and um, Alvin Springer from Andile was there. And, Hi, Bill. And uh, let me show you the car. So I got in it and sitting in it, and, and I'm looking at this big wheel on the dashboard. And Alvin said, no, this is going to control the turbo boost on how much horsepower yeah. you have. Um, if you turn up to whatever it was he said, like 65 inches of boost, he said, you will really enjoy it. And he said, when you like that, turn up 70, and he clapped me on the shoulder, and he said, and then you'll scare yourself. <laughs> and I thought, what? I'm I can, gonna do. I can hear him saying that. I can oh actually my God. hear him saying that. <laughs> so Alvin stood up, and then the, the sun got blocked out briefly by this huge hulk of a man bending down beside the door, and it was A.J. Foyt. And he said, hi, Bill. Uh, my name's A.J. And I thought, oh, my good God, I know who you are, of course. And he said... I'm going to be co-driving with you. You set the car up whatever way you want, and that's fine with me. Wow. He couldn't have been nicer, John. Wow. Wow. And I was so intimidated. I'd seen pictures of him on TV berating mechanics and yes. just going wild. Oh, he, 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 had a, uh, he had a reputation as being uh, a wild, as wild out of the car, sometimes as he was uh, in the car. And a man who suffered, for, I was going to say, didn't suffer fools lightly. He didn't suffer fools at all, did he? Let's be, what, 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 what do you remember of, of that, of that K, a K3 then? Because they had a reputation for being fearsome cars you'd, you'd, you'd driven the, in the XGR5 that was a um, a full blown prototype which had been well developed by Group 44 um, here we've got a car that is sort of sort of straddling the line between um, a, a, a prototype and still using some of Porsche's road car um, nous and, and technology that was really important yeah. for Porsche at that time. And it had a reputation of being an absolute beast. It was a beast. Uh, the, the car, I joked about it later on saying this is what it must be like to drive a, a top fuel dragster <laughs> on a road course because when the boost came on, oh my dear Lord, would that thing accelerate hard. Alvin's told me at the time it was something around 870 horsepower. Wow. And very lightweight car, I think 1,900 pounds or something like this. Wow. Um, but it did not like to turn a corner. You would go into either of the, um, the infield hairpins at Daytona and crank the wheel over, and the car was still like, no, not ready to turn yet. <laughs> Have a nice day and just hang around for a while. And then you'd turn and finally get the thing partly around the corner and feed the boost in, and nothing would happen for the longest time. It, it had tremendous lag, and it finally got to the point where you would, when I, when I was getting a little bit used to it, I would turn into the corner and immediately go with my right foot to the floor. Mm. And then as the boost started to build up, then back out of it a tiny bit, not very much if you could do it. Yeah. <clears throat> Just to get it spooled up, and let's and let's remind yeah. our listeners here, Bill. You are talking about a three-pedal car here with an H pattern shifter, no yes. ABS, no traction control. <laughs> your ABS and your traction control was what you could feel through your backside. That's exactly right. Yeah, it, it was amazing. But 
The car was, uh, it was actually fun to drive, and sadly we didn't do very well. I think we had a fuel injection, gosh, I, I think a fuel injection line actually broke. Ooh. And uh, yeah, didn't didn't create a fire, but we got lucky. But sadly, didn't didn't win. I was I was hoping. I thought, gee, wouldn't it be fun to say yes? I co-drove and won with AJ, AJ Foyt. Foyt. But, yeah, but you can say you co-drove with AJ Foyt, and you, you didn't make an enemy out of him. I think, which is just as big a uh, <laughs> oh, as big a achievement for the big fella. It, it, it's true. It, it was a huge thrill. I was just so honored Man. to to meet him and drive with him. It was great fun. Let's let's move forward. We're not making great progress here with with Bill Adam, but there's so much to talk about in every year. And I'm I'm taking just a few highlights, dear listener. Uh, I, I could talk to Bill for hours, and we probably will. Um, let's move forward to 1984. You're still with um, Group 44, but you get yes. then uh, with the XGR5. You get then the opportunity to try another. T- I mean. You were right in the middle of the era of everybody who's who's my age or, or around about my age, up to your age, who you, you're right in the middle of classic uh, endurance racing cars. So not just a Kramer Racing 956 with the fearsome 2.6 turbo, but also a 962 for Bayside Disposal Racing alongside... You're racing with Group 44. Two more classic cars. Absolutely incredible that you got this to, to sample the 935, the 956, and the 962 in in the space of, a, effectively, a space of a 12-month. Yes, yes. I mean, it was was quite remarkable. And they were they were all different, of course, mm. especially moving from the, the 935 to the prototypes. But even even from the 956 to the 962, the 962 was a much nicer, more user-friendly car. It the extra little bit of wheelbase really made that car nice. And the the only downfall was it didn't turn into a tight corner quite as well. Mm-hmm. The shorter 956 would would pivot a little easier, but to spend time in oh the 962 is a wonderful car. And, uh, you know, to drive for Porsche in those days, it was when they were um, at their absolute zenith. And and probably until the more recent past, actually. And we were fortunate enough to see them in in their pomp with the the Spider and now with the the 963 as well. But when you consider they only won Le Mans for the first time outright in 1970 and they were still right off the back of that and oh, just incredible times I'm very very envious um, another big change for you um, 1985 the March uh-huh. 85G with Conti racing now now this yeah. was a works engine program um, yes. a Buick uh, V6 turbo motor I'm told over a thousand horsepower is that right? They lied. Um, <laughs> in in qualifying trim, we hit over twelve hundred. Oh my goodness! Oh, it was it was just incredible. And you know the amazing thing, John, the nineteen eighty four March, uh, the eighty four G, was arguably one of the nicest race cars I ever drove. Mm-hmm. I drove one one day. It was owned by a gentleman racer named Ken Madron. I drove it at Watkins Glen, and uh, the only thing they had kind of changed from the factory was they put Porsche 935 brakes on it, and the thing would stop like no tomorrow. <laughs> it was 
brilliant, wonderful car. For 85, instead of doing an evolutionary car, they decided they would do something revolutionary mm -hmm. and gave it to a brand new designer at March. And I forget who the, what the name was, but everything about it, every single thing about the car was wrong. No. I mean, for, for example, they put this little NACA duct at the base of the windshield for driver cooling. Okay, in theory, it's a great idea, except ahead of that was the front-mounted radiator vent so that NACA duct was picking up nothing but 200-degree hot air coming okay. out of the radiator. And the first time John Paul, my co-driver, drove it, he lasted, oh my gosh, maybe 12 or 13 minutes and came into the pits, and he was just about passing out. And I thought, John, you're smoking too much marijuana these days or something. you gotta, you got to get fit. And I got in the car, and I lasted exactly the same. The wow. heat was unbearable, but it had... Um, they measured it something like at 100 miles an hour. It had 400 pounds of front-end lift. No way! And it was, it was terrifying to drive. The best part about the car was that little Buick engine that was built and had been developed by McLaren Engineering. Huh? And, oh, my God, was that engine special. Yeah. It would go forever. As long as you kept it under 8,000 RPM, it would go forever. At 8,100, it would stretch a valve. Ah, uh, really? It was that close. It was that yeah. highly stressed. Well, put now that kind of pre uh, power, I'm not not surprised. That 85G raced with other engines as well, because it raced with a Nissan engine and a Porsche engine, if if memory memory serves. Um, and, it, and 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 I'm I'm fairly certain that, that was um, an aluminium monocoque on it was on that yes, car. you're yeah. right. Yep, you got a good memory, John. Uh, the, I read uh, a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Porsche engine, that, Al Holbert put a Porsche engine in his car in 1983. Mm -hmm. And it was a very successful combination that took him to the championship that year. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think they sold that car to the team that won in, it won the Daytona in 84 with Cyril Vandemer and oh, uh, yeah. Tony, oh my gosh, Three South African drivers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Creepy Crawley, that was a sponsor oh, of the yes, car. Oh, yes, of course. What a classic Very, car. very good car. We were talking about AJ Foyt earlier on, being your teammate. You all, yeah. Didn't you drive for, for Rick Hendricks, for, for Hendricks Motorsport? In a, was, that, was that in the Corvette GTP in, in 85 as well? Yeah, that was 85. And um, they had asked me to drive because the march was so bad that we withdrew it from Daytona and said, this thing's just, it's flat out dangerous. It's going to kill one of us. And uh, Hendricks um, came over and asked me if I would like to co-drive with uh, Cyril in the, the Corvette GTP. That was the Lola chassis that they, they called the Corvette. And it, mm. too, was just, gosh, it was a good car. It looked beautiful as well. You just, that was one of those things, like when I first looked at the GTP Jag, I fell in love with it. Same thing with the Corvette, with the black and white and silver. Oh, it looked so pretty. And... It also had north of 1,100 horsepower with that V6 Chevrolet engine. How did you even manage in those days? Tire technology, nowhere near what we've got nowadays. I mean, how did you even go about taming that and, and getting yourself into that mindset, Bill, to be able to jump into those prototypes, those thoroughbred racing cars and and tame them on i mean 
were you still you were you running? You would have been running slicks in those days, weren't you? Yes, you would have been. Yes, then. yes. Yep. Um, but my good, I, I just can't even begin to, to think about what sort of skill level you guys were at at that point. Well, the one thing that I, I always look back and I think it helped me tremendously, John, was my my early days of racing my the Corvettes that I owned myself. Because I had no money, I was completely aware that. Uh, if I ruined a set of tires, I was done for the rest of the year. Huh. If I crashed the car, I might have been done forever. I just I couldn't afford very much. So I tried to learn to be as smooth as I can, conserving tires, gearboxes, whatever. And I learned that my right foot was like a rheostat instead of a switch. Uh. And I, I see a lot of drivers... Um, they drive like a switch. It's either off the gas or flat out, and then they try to catch the slide. I was always so intent on feeding the power in gently and just trying to balance the slide of the front and the rear. Uh, a little dabble in um, one of the Rothmans, uh, in fact, uh, the seven of the Rothmans um, races in the Porsche Challenge Series in a Porsche 9. Four four. Now, as a Porsche 968, uh, 968 owner, I, I know how lovely and beautifully balanced the front-engined um, four-cylinder Porsches are with the transaxle gearbox. That was something a little bit different. You finished fourth in the championship there, um, but also got to drive another, and this one's a real rarity. Um, this is a Frisbee uh, KR4. Ah, now, what do yes. you remember of horse crawl racing and this <laughs> car? I've dug this one out and done a little bit of uh, research on this with our friends at Lola Cars because it started as a Lola T330. Yes. And um, five litre, normally aspirated, so that's what, 305 cubic inch, normally yep. aspirated Chevy engine in that. And and that's, that's what you raced uh, in... Uh, at least once in the Can-Am series in 86. This, this was a Can-Am car. Can-Am, brilliantly, yes. listeners, go and, go and look it up. This was, a, this was a championship where pretty much everything goes. The technical regulations was one sheet of A4 paper. And we've never seen anything like it before <laughs> or since. Um, uh-huh. And so this was, this was effectively built um, for horse crawl racing. And did you drive with Paul Tracy in that? No, uh, because it was a sprint event, ah. and uh, I actually I was contacted by the owners of Mosport and said, ah. "Hey, we would like you to to drive Horst's second car." Right, and I thought, "Yeah, I'm I'm quite curious. I, I'd be interested in doing that." So they paid my expenses to come up there, and I can remember taking the car out and thinking it was one of the most evil cars I'd ever <laughs> driven. I went. Down the front straight, you know how quick it is there, John, going oh, yeah. into turn one. And I went into turn one, and this thing snap oversteer. And I thought, oh, my God. Couldn't understand what happened. Well, the crew never did figure it out. I, I had to race it that way. And it turned out that when the car was shipped over, there were two locating points for the rear suspension. One that you could put in a, a high mode to give it clearance for shipping. Uh, and they had never they had never changed it. So it was still this on thing, transport settings. It was still on transport settings, and oh, they were all like, "Well, we can't understand it because Horst really likes the handling of his car." And, and so, well, put up with it. And I ended up almost winning. I led until the last lap, and I saw Horst coming up, and I thought, oh, "I'm not going to even try to keep him behind me." And 
he's my boss and he's in the championship hunt, so it's more important he win. Mm. But the uh, the car itself was it, <laughs> it, it kept trying to kill me, John. I mean, there were bits and pieces falling off all the time. There was one time when I'm coming up the back straight, and as I come over one of those little hills that blocks your view, here in the middle of the track is sitting this big, tall fiberglass scoop. And I'm thinking, oh, oh my God, somebody lost a scoop off the rear deck. Well, it was mine. <laughs> and I didn't know it at the time, but I saw photographs later on thinking, where the heck's that piece gone? And wow. And the other thing was, again, coming up the back straight, maybe because I'm pushing so hard on the gas pedal, the seat had been mounted by two tiny pins off the top corners, right, right by your shoulders. Yeah. And these pins went into the bodywork, keeping the seat where it was. Uh-huh. Well, one of them broke, which dropped the seat back and rubbing up against the pulley on the engine, which is no. there spinning at 7,500 RPM. And I felt this grinding, and I knew right away what it was. And I thought, I've just got to pull myself up with the steering wheel no. and support myself like that for the rest of the race. I couldn't lean back. Oh, my goodness me. Another oddity that you drove, I think only once, as far as I can see, in 1986, um, you, you were also driving the March uh, and, a, and a Porsche 962 for Leeward and, and, and for Bearside. Again. Oh, yes. Um, but in 1986, you also drove for Giovardi Racing, in an Alba AR5 <laughs> with a Buick. Now, I God. think you got the only podium that that car ever got because it was never really that competitive against no. the 962s. Joe's team ran a more, more Corsa, ran a car in, in the red and yellow, and True Sports as well in 85 and 86. And, and you managed to get a podium in that car. That was the funniest thing. I'm six foot one, and Joe Vardy is. Maybe five feet, maybe. Mm-hmm. And he, he came over in the paddock at Mid-Ohio and said, Bill, come with me. And he, he's dragging me with him and takes me over to the car and said, I want you to co-drive with me in, in, at this event. And I said, Joe, I'm never going to fit. And he just told the crew, take the seat out. And he said, now get in. So I drove the car with no seat at all. I'm sitting on the floor yeah. of this little car and uh, yeah, we got lucky enough to get podium, and it was—he was a funny character. Oh my gosh! <laughs> we are very fortunate still in sports car racing, and particularly in the IMSA paddock, um, to to still have plenty of characters. And I, 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 I honestly think that that I am blessed to have found myself um, on my bizarre journey uh, in that paddock uh, and, and to call some of the people who were my heroes friends, you included. Yeah, isn't that special? Oh, it is, mate. It, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. I, I want to spin forward a little bit. Um, this is going to be one of our longest long ones ever. I can feel it. Um, y- you did some more um, Rothman's Porsche Challenge in the 944, um, coming second the in the Turbo series. Cup. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in, in Second in the series in 1987. And that, that netted you uh, um, the Porsche Cup Award, which is uh, goes out to the, the top non-factory races to this day. That is something that is tremendously hard fought for and, uh, and people are put on a pedestal for. So what do you remember of that year? And, and did, did they take your device act that year to give you the, 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 the presentation as they would do now? 
Yeah, they did, John, and it was... Uh, I, I hadn't even been aware of it mm. until it all happened. And uh, I was just absolutely floored. I, I was so honored. And then, of course, getting the trip over to Germany to meet everybody. And it was, oh, my God. It was um, very, very magical. And, and that little 944 Turbo, that was a great car. God, so much fun. And to go back, I can remember a friend of mine in Canada, who owned a Porsche dealership, when they first started the, the Rothmans Porsche series, he phoned me up and he said, Bill, I in fact, it was the same weekend as the, uh, the Can-Am race where I drove for Horse Crow. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, I understand you're coming up, you're going to be driving this Frisbee. Would you like to drive one of my cars in the uh, Rothmans Porsche races? John, to be totally honest, my ego and my pride got in the way. And I'm thinking... Oh. I'm driving GT prototypes, some mm -hmm. Trans Am cars, mm -hmm. on and on. I thought, why would I want to get back into a little street car? So I turned him down. I, I made some lame excuse. And uh, he phoned back like a week later and he said, Bill, I'm, I'm asking you again. And in fact, I'm begging a little bit. Can you please do it for me? We've been friends. for, And I finally said, yes, very, very reluctantly, John. And it turned out... It was probably the most fun I've ever had in wow. any race series because right. all of the cars were dead equal. Yes. And if you made a little mistake, the guy behind you would suddenly be the guy alongside you and he would eke by you with a one mile an hour speed difference. And it, it turned out to be a ball. And I was so grateful that my friend had persisted in asking me because it was just just wonderful. Met many, many good friends, had some wonderful race experiences alongside, uh, up against Scott Goodyear, uh, Ron Fellows, ah. Davy Jones. Um, they had a lot of guest drivers in there. And, oh, my God, it was fun. You mentioned Scott Goodyear, and in 87, uh, you and Scott Goodyear were teammates at Le Mans in a, in a 962 for what was effectively Brun Motorsport, or Porsche yes. Canada put their name on that. Now, please tell me at this point... Um, this, so, 87 was a very good year for you. Uh, you get to go at Le Mans, you ran in the top six uh, before, I think it was an engine issue, took you guys out. But yep. are you getting paid at this point? Are you still being an insurance adjuster? Um, I was getting paid at that point. Um, and uh, although, Le, oh yeah, I was paid to go to Le Mans, that's true, which, which was just wonderful. And <laughs> that turned out to be a, an awesome experience, um, even though it... We were put out of the race by a cylinder head. I think they said it was starting to crack because mm. that year the uh, the chips that Porsche brought around ah, for the, all the East units were yes. faulty. Yes. And there were like two or three blow-ups on the opening lap of the race. And my crew chief with Brun, uh, a young man named Peter Reinisch, who was, he was great, mm. he called me in right away. Bill, make, and I thought, why am I coming in at the end of lap one? And they changed it, hoping they caught it. Uh, but in the middle of the night, the engine finally was overheating like crazy. And we just had to pack it away. What do you remember of Le Mans and, and your first... You'd you, you turned back up at Le Mans um, many times in your broadcasting career. But what do you remember about going there in a very different age to, to what we see now? But it was always a big event, uh, even uh, possibly even... But in in some respects, especially in in those years of the the uh, mid to late eighties. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a lot of memories of, of Le Mans from the uh, the Grand Marnier crepes in the paddock. I remember that. So. <laughs> but the, um, the the one the speed, I guess, was the other mm. thing. John is in the Brune car. It was the uh, like long tail, low downforce on the Mulsanne. We were two hundred and forty four miles per hour. Miles an hour. And miles we weren't the hour. fastest car. <laughs> I can remember going down the straight one time, and I had entered the street and I looked in my mirror and there was the Sauber and um, it was uh, Jochen Maas was in that. Yeah. I talked with Jochen later, he's, he's an old dear friend and he went by me, he had to be like four miles an hour faster than me and here's this big motoring by me and I'm thinking, oh my dear God mm. and just amazing. But the, you know, the other thing too is, is I, I had a scary moment and sitting on the grid prior to the start of the race with that that sea of people in the grandstand you, you know exactly what i mean oh yeah and when as we're getting closer and closer to the parade lap starting the silence was yes. unbelievable i just i couldn't get over that many people being silent and then we finally got the uh, the signal to start engines and i was sitting behind one of the factory toyotas and i'm I'm sitting, looking at his car, and I'm, I'm waiting to hear this, and all I see is this mist coming out the tailpipe. And I thought, oh, he flooded it. And I'm sitting, my car is idling away, and the mist was getting thicker and thicker, and then suddenly it turns into smoke. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, it's on fire. Mm. I have full gas tanks. Mm-hmm. He has full gas tanks, and everybody's getting waved off. I jammed the Porsche into reverse, and I backed up, and I thought, if I hit somebody, I don't care. I'm getting the hell out of here. And uh, I went around him, but it was a bit terrifying thinking the possibility of fire right there. So hang on, you started your first Le Mans start going backwards. That's that's (laughs) phenomenal. That's something I didn't know uh, about you. That's true. Plenty more to talk about uh, with Bill Adam, who's our guest on uh, this special uh, Tyler's Long One. Um, uh, uh, more Porsche driving through the late 80s into the, the early 90s. You drove for Fab Car as well and Proto Fab Racing. Yeah. Proto Fab in GTO Racing. Um, yes. Well, that, was a, that was effectively as close as you were going to get to a factory um, GTO Corvette in those days. That's exactly what it was. Um, at that time, Protofab did have a factory deal. All of the engines, all of the aerodynamics, it was all done by Chevrolet. And great cars. Bob Riley has always been one of my heroes. He's, he's just not only one of the nicest men in the world, who I think in the off-season he turns into Santa Claus because he's got that little sneaky smile. He's just a genuinely happy man. And he's brilliant. The, the cars that he does, gosh... He has never penned a dog yet, and I no. don't think he's capable of it. He's so good. No, absolutely right. Um, m- more um, Porsche racing, as I say, in the early 90s. I want to fast forward to 1992 because um, consulting the, the record books here, um, I see that in the IMSA Bridgestone Supercar Championship, a championship that I have to say I am not very au fair with, but your name came up in a Mazda RX-7 Turbo. Now, I've only just 
had my first goal relatively recently in a turbo engine Mazda, and that was a, a street car, but it blew my mind completely. What was the RX-7 turbo race car like? Rated, of course, at only 1.3 litres, but producing a ridiculous amount of power and, and revving for fun. It was crazy power. I got the invitation uh, from Mazda. They were telling me that uh, their factory driver was a young Kiwi named Peter Farrell. And uh, Peter had, at Laguna Seca, he had a third car available. So they, they offered it to me. And uh, when I got in and drove it, I couldn't get over the horsepower. And, of course, on the uh, what ostensibly were street tires, oh, Lord, that thing would smoke them up in a heartbeat. Very quick, very good handling car. And it turned out in the race, if, if memory serves me correctly, I don't think I even went into the race, John, because Peter, who was in the hunt for the championship, was having some problems with his own car, whereas my car was ah. running perfectly. And I just said, look. It doesn't matter. Would I like to drive it? Yes, I absolutely love your car, but it's important you get points. So I think that's what we did. There's a, a little bit of a gap here in the Bill Adam racing CV um, for a couple of years. What was what was going on there before a, a very important return and a very important partnership started in, in 1994? So what, what was what was it that kept you out of racing for a couple of years in the early 90s, Bill? Um. Quite honestly, it was just, just a lack of opportunities, John. I think teams were pretty set back then, and um, I was more or less happy doing the television with good friends like you and, and radio and, and that sort of thing. So I was fairly content, uh, and I just got lost by the wayside until uh, until I got the phone call from Dave Mirage. So we'll come to... Dave Mirage and Champion, because that is a huge part of this story here, and we've only just got to it. Um, but you mentioned the TV. How did the broadcasting come about? That's the, the question that I always get asked by people is, how did you get started? And my answer always is, I'm not really certain. I think I was just in the right place at the right time. And I'm still waiting to be found out and someone tap me on the shoulder and, and tell me that they've realised I'm just a petrol head from Sunderland. Now, go on, off you go. Um, to, to which my answer would be, you're absolutely right. I've had a good run. Thank you very much. So how did your broadcast career get underway, Bill? Well, it actually went back to uh, 1985, the year co-driving with uh, John Paul Jr. in the, the March Buick. And as you had pointed out, we were we were on the pole virtually every race. We're on the pole for the Daytona 24, broke down. On the pole for the Miami Grand Prix, broke down. Sebring, pole, breakdown. And uh, after we broke at Sebring, somebody came down from the TV booth where the late Ken Squire was Legend. hosting the... Legend. Oh, my God. What a wonderful guy. And uh, they sent down and said, Bill, would you, uh, would you like to come up to the booth and have a chat with Ken and tell him what it's like out there? And I thought, yeah, I've got nothing to do now. The race is over for us. So I went up and Ken signaled the headset for me to put on and sit down beside him. And we had a really nice time. And uh, afterwards, the, uh, the producer... Uh, man named Fred Reinstein, who, uh, oh, he's brilliant. Gosh, was he terrible to work for because he was a screamer. He, he would just hit the all-call button and go, well, you're a bunch of idiots, no matter what you were doing, John, and just 
Oh, and for those that don't know, what Bill's talking about there is when you're working in TV or radio and you're actually calling a race, when you're presenting or when you're commentating, that if there is a director and a producer, they can talk to you without the, the audience hearing. And, and all call means everybody hears it. So that's every camera person, everybody in the truck, everybody in production, and everybody who's on air at that time. Now, some producers, and Jim Roller is one of the best I've ever worked with with this, he talks to you as if it's your own thought. I, 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 I sometimes hadn't even realised it was Jim talking to me at that. If you get a screamer, which is what Bill's talking about here, it's almost impossible to stay on track with what you're thinking about, Bill, isn't it? Correct, correct. It, it, it's just so difficult. And, of course, I knew nothing about what's going on. Candace said, put the headset on. And when, when Fred started ranting and raving, I thought, oh, what have I said? What have I done? And I was terrified. And Ken, of course, later on, gave his shy little smile and said, Bill, nothing to worry about. That's just Fred. He's having another rough day. <laughs> and was so calm about it. But that led, actually, to somebody calling me going, hey, you, you know, you were able to put two words together. Would you like to come and do it again at this event? And I did. And really enjoyed myself. Again, it went back to the idea of being able to share our sport with people and and add information that they may not otherwise have. And and contextualise it as well. The the, the idea of of having racing drivers in in the booth was was really still in its relatively early infancy. Certainly in American broadcasting, um, people like Jackie Stewart, um, who not just in Formula One, but also in sports car racing and um, and even in stock car racing, was, was well known for it once he'd retired in the early 1970s. But it, yes. it, it wasn't necessarily the norm even to have two voices in a booth in those days. This, this was still quite in its infancy, Bill. Yes, it really was. And it's something that uh, I had always set out to add accurate information it it went back to i believe it was jackie stewart as well doing a race broadcast at some point i i couldn't tell you what track it was or where it was john but he was asked to explain something and he gave the wrong information i mean what he said was absolutely the wrong thing and i thought oh my god he's a past world champion every listener every viewer viewer is going to assume that what he said was gospel and it was wrong and i thought wow i have to be careful if i if i do this i want to make sure that the information that i am giving out is correct Mm, absolutely and and you you've always been brilliant at that and some of the thank you my most favorite times of broadcasting um in the american le mans series when was when you and i shared a booth it wasn't just what what went on in the booth it was great if we'd been running a tape in various higher cars backwards and forwards to the track then uh, we would have had even more uh, to talk about in in this show show now Uh, so that was going on there wasn't an opportunity for you to drive for a couple of years and then as you say Dave Mirage blessed Dave Mirage anybody who's ever met Dave um, he is he's probably one of the nicest most rounded personalities that I've ever met and the fact that he was so successful in two very much dog-eat-dog world in in some ways doesn't square with me because you would think he was too nice to be good at car sales and uh, and even 
motorsport possibly even more bizarrely, but he was. But he treated everybody the same, Bill. So tell me a little bit. How did did you know Dave already when he called up from champion in in 1994? No, the the, the first time uh, I heard from Dave was he had one of his people phone me to see if I would come up to the racetrack at uh, Palm Beach. It used to be called Moroso Speedway. Yeah. And uh, drive the new 3.6 turbo Porsche streetcar. Somebody was coming from one of the magazines uh, to do a story on it. And Dave said, I don't want him driving it on the racetrack. It, this is the first car coming over here. It's very valuable. And were you, you based based down in Florida by then, Bill? You'd moved south? I was, yes. Yeah, okay. Yep. So he said, can you come up and, and take him as a passenger? And I said, yeah. And uh, so I drove up, had a delightful day. Dave, as you know, was just the most low-key, humble, happy individual. He was a delight to be around. And we went to dinner at the end of the day, and just thoroughly enjoyable. And, and at dinner, Dave said, you know, one of these days I should, I should start a race team. And that was the moment. And wow. he just decided that, okay... He would get the mechanics at the dealership to start preparing a car just to do a limited basis kind of thing. And it just kept growing and growing to his realization of dreams that I, I, I don't know if he ever thought possible. So, so you reunited with John Paul Jr. Uh, you've got Juan Manuel Fangio II, Brian Redmond, mm-hmm. Terry Bootson. Yeah. Um, you finished second at the Sebring 12-hour with Han Stuck um, and second at Watkins Glen as well. And then won the 12-hour Sebring uh, GT1 class in 1996. It, yeah. Second in class, again with Stuck and Bo- Bootson at uh, 24 hours of Daytona the, the following year. This was, this was a magical time. And from not being in the sport and not having a drive to getting into cars that were so strong, Bill. What, what was that like? No, we should say, I haven't mentioned the car. You've got to talk about the car as well. Oh, yeah. The, the, the car was just wonderful. They called it, it was the very first of the GT1 Porsches. Yes. Um, and it was, it was actually quite nice to drive. People always talk about how the, the 911 type of Porsche is evil. This car was not evil. It was really nice. Great brakes, terrific horsepower, very, very controllable. And you know what? I, I got to say one thing, John, that the year when we won Sebring in 96, it was a, a huge moment for me in that Dave Mirage was one of the, the kindest, most generous individuals. And to be able to get up on victory stand mm. and give him the trophy to hold... Ah was huge. I had gone through my whole life wanting to win for myself, wanting to win for the crew it, it, to a slightly lower degree. Basically, racing's pretty selfish, but Sebring was totally different. I wanted to win for Dave Mirage yeah. because of all he had given. And you know, a quick story on the type of gentleman he was. I think it was Sebring of either 95 or 96. We had a brand new truck driver that year. And I went over and talked to him at one point because he had a rag out and some polish and he was doing these, you know, those big, huge wheels yeah. on the truck and the trailer and they, they glitter. He's polishing these things like crazy in order to say, Rick, you know, how are you? And I'm Bill and blah, blah. I'm good. I know Bill. I know who you are. And, 
And so we're chatting as Dave walked over and he's like, Ricky, don't do that. We have people here that can clean. You, you're the driver of the truck and that's, that's your... And he was like, no, Mr. Mirage, I, I want to be part of the team. I want to help clean and do this thing. And uh, Dave said, did everything go okay at the hotel? Well, Rick delayed his response by seconds only and said, um, actually, no, sir, but I was able to get into the Kenilworth. Now, John, you know the Kenilworth, yeah. it, this old flea-bitten hotel, yeah. no air conditioning, no nothing. And Dave said, you're in the Kenilworth. Yeah, that's okay, Mr. Mirage, don't worry about it. And Dave reached into his pocket, takes out his room key and said, you go over to the such and such resort yeah, where we yeah. were staying, take my stuff out of the room, take it to the Kenilworth, and you go back yeah. and you sleep. Well, Rick was aghast, thinking, oh, I, and he said, Rick, do it. And that night, I went to the Kenilworth, and there was Dave Mirage sitting in the lobby with his glass of Johnny Walker Black, sweat rivulets streaming down his forehead, but he took care of the crew. Yeah. Uh, that complete, the, the complete opposite from what you'd seen with Bob Tullius, interestingly. Totally. I mean, 180 totally degree opposite. opposite. I, I want to talk a little bit more about that 911 GT1 because yes. although it was called a 911 GT1, it, there was barely anything that, that was shared with what would have been then the 993 because it was before even the 996 came out. Designed by Tony Hatter, who is a guy from my neck of the woods, who's super guy, um, and Norbert Singer. Of course, Tony had done yes. the 993 streetcar, uh-huh. um, of which I still have one. And oh, nice, John. Oh, yeah, still got me two S. I, I think that's oh. probably a keeper. The, the rear subframe was effectively, came from the 962, see? Um, yes. It was a mid-engine car um, rather than a rear-engine uh, car as a 911 would have been. 600 horsepower minimum. Um, and this this was a, a phenomenal piece of kit. And it really, for the new GT1 regulations, it moved things on massively. It was called a class killer eventually, but everybody was doing it. Uh, you know, we had the Ferrari F40, the McLaren F1 at the same sort of time. And uh-huh. you, you were driving with Hans uh, Stuck and, and Thierry Bootsen, who were the development drivers. They developed the car and I, I've got a feeling that they, they they debuted the car at Brands in the in what was then called the um, BPR GT oh, series, sure, yeah. uh-huh. um, where it was a um, I was I was there. Um, I'm I'm pretty certain I was there. If not, I've dreamt it. Um, but they weren't allowed <laughs> they weren't allowed to score points. So so this I mean it still did 200 miles an hour in the Mulsanne straight, um, which it, which um, was you know it was no slouch, but this was coming into America for the first time, and it, it was a big deal for Porsche, and particularly for Porsche America and Champion, because it did, it had echoes of the, the road car, and when the 996 came out, they changed the headlights to those sort of fried egg-shaped ones, uh-huh. and, and the Evo, that was paid for out of, um, out of marketing money for the new 996, which you remember, the 996 was the first water-cooled streetcar what what, yes. what what that car always looked to me as if it was doing 100 miles an hour standing still um, yes. but it also um, it looked to me as though it was a very well balanced and well thought out race car from an aesthetic point of view but what was it like from a driver's point of view 
the nicest Porsche I have ever raced in my life. It, it was so I can remember uh, looking at pictures of it the first time, and uh, Stucky said, "Oh, Billy, wait till you try the new car. You think this one is bad? Oh, this one." And he was going on beating this thing up, and I'm like, "Oh my God, no, really? It's worse." So. Champion had the car delivered, mm-hmm. and uh, I was up at Moroso at Palm Beach to test it for the first time. And I get in the car, and I do up all the belts, and I'm okay, I'm ready to go. And I grabbed the driver's door, swung it closed, and it went funk. Oh. Just this nice, solid sound. Nice. And I went, oh, crap, I must have caught the seatbelt in the door. Opened the door, looked down, oh, no seatbelt in the way. I pull it closed again, funk. Like, what's going on? The old car, the car from the previous year, you close the door, and because it was like tinfoil, you'd hear the bang yes. as the door would close. There's a very hollow sound. Mm. And the reason it was going thunk was that Porsche had thought to put rubber sealing material all around yeah. the door frame so racing in the rain, you wouldn't get wet. Ah, uh, and you wouldn't stay up. Thought, Stuck, you lying son of a gun. <laughs> and when I put it in gear and I went out of, the, out of the track, I wasn't even out of third gear thinking, oh, this car is so good. Mm. It just was solid. The steering was so directional. Again, it was a race car that did so much to help you rather than mm. fight against you. Great car. That started a, a long um, association with Champion and a long friendship with the much-missed Dave Mirage, although yes. the family keeps champion uh, and its uh, dealerships going and has had a wee foray back into to racing on Pikes Peak actually uh, most, yes, most recently true. which which is great. Um, yeah I agree. You uh, you did do a, a, actually a Porsche Michelin Super Cup race uh, in 2002 and you did some Grand Am in, in 2004 but the champion thing stayed for a very long time right up until um, and including when they were running Audis by then because you were effectively a test driver for, for those guys, and you help them. This is, again, it, it, it's proof if proof were needed how Dave looked at things uh, and how people like Brad Kettler looked at things, that they trained as a team, and you were part of that team. Yeah, I cherish that too, John. And, and the, the test thing was something that I just loved doing because the, the bond that you establish with the fellows in the team was so very special. Mm. And they had, uh, like you pointed out, Brad Kettler all the way down. So many guys who were an integral part in making that the success that it turned out to be. Mm. They, Dave, I thought, was a master in choosing the right person for the right job. Totally, totally. And, and that, that went right up to the Audi R8 days. Now, you told me once that overall, if you had to drive one race car forever and a day, that it would be the Audi R8. And you actually said, it's such an easy car to drive, John, even you can drive it. Do, do you still, do you still, but not the fact that I could drive it, but do you still look fondly back at the, the, the Audi R8 open top prototype with that lovely V8 engine? 100%. That, that, I can remember the very first time I drove it was uh, at a Sebring test in around the year 2000. We just got the car delivered. And uh, it was only us at Sebring. Mm. Nobody else was there. Car and driver did a, a really nice story on it. And I can remember driving it. I couldn't believe how good the car was. That yeah. normally, turn one at Sebring, it, it's like 
driving across marbles in a car with no suspension. It just <laughs> beats you up. It's terrible. Turn one in the Audi was, you were hardly aware there was a bump. Really? And from outside, I can remember watching years later, probably on a broadcast that you and I did, in that the R8, as it goes through turn one, the bodywork is staying very level, and the suspension is going up and down, doing yeah. all the, the hammering and, and absorbing the bumps. Um, I can recall going down into the hairpin, and I, I kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper under braking. I couldn't believe how effectively the car was slowing down. And finally, at one point, out of the vents on the top of the left front bodywork, I saw smoke. I thought, oh, locked, locked it up a little bit. Normally, any other race car I've driven my entire life, you lock a tire and the car will pull violently in one direction. Yes. The Audi, the only indication that you locked a tire was just that little bit of smoke. Really? Thought, oh, my, this thing's so good. Uh, I mean, that, that was a 3.6 V8 uh, yes. twin turbo. And that push rod um, damper system with the the extra the horizontal damper, yes, um, yes. that that was that was the the game changer. They were very very. I, I remember seeing it at places like Sayers Point when we were still racing uh, at Sayers Point and going through turn one there. And again, the bumps didn't didn't just didn't exist for that car um no. going through turn one at, at most ctmp same thing it was, it was it was like it was riding on on air now you never yes. got you never got to race that car in period but you raced it and won championships with it in historic racing uh in the original chassis 405 and then one of the new brad kettler ones which was the the old show car um unraced show car mm-hmm. which i think was 607 but still You're with Bo- still with uh, Bobby Green um, yeah. as crew chief, and with Butch Lightsinger and and Andy Wallace, you won races. You raced in that in those cars, and you won run a championship as well. Yeah, I was was very lucky. I won their uh, their championship twice, mm. and just had so much fun in it, as well as having some truly great racing. That the HSR turned out to be, oh gosh, almost a perfect series because we had. Wonderful, very, very competitive races um, with, I mean, other cars like the Peugeot Diesel. It, it's mm. out there running around now. Um, George Robinson used to run with uh, sometimes Jack Baldwin co-driving, mm. sometimes Wally Dallenbach Jr. Uh, in his, uh, what did he have now? Riley and Scott with a five-liter Judd. Yes, it. that's right. And oh. wow, best sound in the world, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Love that tons engine. of horsepower. I think he had like... 840 odd horsepower and mm. where the Audi was yeah 620 perhaps mm. but the car was was so good and, oh gee we had fun races I remember the very first time Butch Leitzinger drove the car at Sebring and he came in and he takes his helmet off and had this big smile ear to ear and he looked down and he said no wonder we couldn't beat him <laughs> I was going to say, because he, he competed against it in period. Uh, Bill, thank you very much for, for this run through your racing life. Oh, um, pleasure, John. Was the Audi R8 the last car that you competed in then? Um, yes, it would be. That was um, maybe like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did the race at Watkins Glen and... Uh, in the Audi, that track was ungodly fast. And mm-hmm. up through the S's, when you go by the pits there, you've got a 90-degree right-hander, mm-hmm. which was, in the Audi, it was a third-gear corner. Mm-hmm. 
and then accelerating down a bit of a hill and a fourth, fifth, and up through the S's. And if you did it right and everything was proper, you could just barely do it flat out. But if something was wrong, that double or triple layer armco right there, oh, yeah. you'd be a pinball and a bad machine. And it ended up that on the last lap of the race, I was having this great battle with Elliot Forbes Robinson driving in uh, George's uh, Judd engine monster. And I, I passed him under braking with three corners to go and won the race. And I got back home to our cottage in Canada and I said to my wife, I'm going to quit. Hmm. I, you know, it, it's one of these things that I've had wow. so many truly wonderful experiences. But if I make a mistake at this point, God forbid, or if something breaks at the wrong point, yes. you're going to be suffering for a Well, maybe she won't. Maybe she'll be cheering. But uh, it, I, I just, think not. <laughs> I, yeah, I would agree. <laughs> but it was just one of these things I thought, I've got to stop being selfish. And uh, the first race I missed... I missed it tremendously. I kept mm. thinking, well, Andy Wallace is in the car. It's my car. I hope he takes care of it and on and on. The second race, I was fine, John. And that's when Diane said, you made the right decision. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, could not, none of that could have happened without the support of family, of course. And uh, we wish you and Diane the best and Cher as well, uh, of Thank course. Um, what a career, Bill, to think that in 90 minutes or thereabouts, we've taken you from buying your first racing car with three <laughs> pedals and a stick shift in that, that Corvette Grand Sport to paddle shift, state-of-the-art as it was in period and still capable of putting in exceptionally uh, competitive lap times um, with that Audi R8. Bill Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure to have been a small part of that little journey uh, for you and thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of Tyler's Longmore. Well, John, you, you've been a huge part of what I've always considered the most important part of motorsport, and that's the friends that you make through the sport. And uh, I value our friendship so strongly. This program is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.